Hello, hello. Today we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. It's exciting because Hebrews is such an amazing book. Um, Yeah, an amazing book. (laughs) It gets so detailed into the office of Christ our Savior. Prophet, priest, and king, how he's greater than all. So, we're going to dive right in today. We're going to read the whole chapter. Then we're going to go. We're going to go. So, turn with your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great word that you have given us. God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. Help us to have a greater understanding of your truth and the gospel. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to go from the very beginning back to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, 
This, therefore, is coming from the chapter that we previously did, where we had this great warning, this great exhortation to, uh, to take care. We see that in verse 12 of chapter 3, to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So, chapter 3 was a great warning that we would not have an unbelieving heart. We're being called to put our faith in Christ, to have faith, because verse 19 of chapter 3 says, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So, obviously, apart from faith in Christ, we won't enter into God's rest. We won't be saved apart from faith in Christ. And I love how chapter 4 starts with, therefore, this promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Um, I love how he says fear. This word fear has, in my lifetime, I think, totally been like tucked in the corner. Or it's diminished its meaning. Um, the word fear about fearing God. You know, because people think, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of God. You know, he's your savior. And it's like, then you read passages in the Old Testament and his presence would show up and everyone was terrified. And they like, they fell on their face. And like, they were like begging that God wouldn't destroy them. So it's a real fear. And we as Christians should have a real fear. Like, like a real fear, a real awe, a real reverence of God and of his power. And we should truly heed the warnings of scripture. But, of course, we know that in Christ, we can have assurance of our salvation. So, you know, every day the Christian doesn't have to wake up terrified that they're going to go to hell because we look to Christ. But let's just always be careful to still have that reverence and awe and that true fear that the scriptures call us to. For good news came to them. We're continuing in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. And we enter it by faith. Because he's clearly stating they did not enter because they were not united by faith. We want to have faith. And we know that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing the word of God. That's why we need the word of God. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. Everyone who ever is going to enter into this final eternal rest of salvation in Christ is going to have faith and they are going to believe. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Picking up in verse 3, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is cool because he's actually, this is from Genesis chapter 2. This idea of rest comes all the way from the beginning, all the way from the beginning of creation. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, after God creates everything, it says that he sits down. Well, I don't know if it explicitly says he sat down, sorry. But it says that he rested, okay? We all know that. So this idea of rest is God has 
put that forth for us as people since the very beginning. And if you want more details on that, you can go to Pastor Kendall's sermon. He did a sermon on Hebrews chapter 4, and he goes very greatly detailed into this Sabbath rest. We're going to touch on it a little bit today, but um, I listened to it this week, and uh, it was better than I remember. It was really good, just because, you know, kids, you know, maybe I missed part of it, but it was, it was incredible. And, and something he said was, you know, God didn't need to rest because we know God doesn't get tired. You know, because he's God. He doesn't get tired. He didn't need to rest on the seventh day. It was something that he was putting forward to speak of even a future rest for all of eternity. Um, so that's cool. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. We just talked about that, how they failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So Joshua led the people into the promised land because Moses didn't, which is pretty interesting. God wouldn't even let him go see the promised land like he saw it from afar. But um, we're sorry. Um, <laughs> If Joshua would have given them rest, David wouldn't have spoken later in the Psalms of a future rest. So we know that there remains, and that's, what, that's the next verse. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his it's interesting, he's talking about rest. And then right after he's talking about rest, in verse 11, he says, let us strive to enter that rest. Some verses even say labor. Well, that's interesting. Doesn't sound very restful, does it? We're going to get into that. Um, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Because we do not want to fall, of course. I want to read a quote from John Calvin about this Sabbath rest. Now, this confirmation the apostle teaches us takes place when we rest from our works. It hence at length follows that man becomes happy by self-denial. For what else is it to cease from our works but to mortify our flesh? When a man renounces himself that he may live to God. For here we must always begin. When we speak of a godly and holy life, that man being in a manner dead to himself should allow God to live in him. I love that. how he says that. Um, obviously, we know that God doesn't need our permission to live in us. He's making a point here that we'll get into. God does not need permission to do anything. And he needs no permission to save anyone. He doesn't need your own permission to save you. Because God saves who he wants. And that's what we see clearly from Genesis to Revelation. That God rules and reigns from heaven above. He saves exactly who he wants to. Exactly when he wants to. So this is not talking about salvation. But I just, it's the, the, the language here. Should allow God to live in him. That he should abstain from his own works. So as to give place to God to work. We must indeed confess that then only is our life rightly formed when it becomes subject to God. 
The life of the Christian should be subject to God. We obey God. We live for God. But through inbred corruption, this is never the case. Until we rest from our own works, nay, such is the opposition between God's government and our corrupt affections, that he cannot work in us until we rest. When I heard that, I was like, what? What's he talking about? Because once again, God does not need our permission to work in us. Okay? He's talking about the life of the Christian. He's talking specifically about this Sabbath day of rest that we're observing right now. When we come here on this Sabbath day, we're telling God, like, you know, we want him to do a work in our hearts. We're here because we're hungry for the things of God. And so, yes, God can work in you, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Of course, God can work in us every day of the week. But what we're doing is, as Christians, we're observing this day because we're coming here because we desire to become more Christ-like. You know, God is our master and the Bible explicitly goes into details about how Christ is our master and we're the servant. You could go as far as to say we're the slave. People don't like that language today. But um, there's that one parable where he says at the end of the day, I can only say, master, I've only done my duty. It's our duty, you know, like this isn't. We're truly here because we love God, but we also want God to work in us. It's a way that we stir one another up as well is to come here to encourage each other to come here to worship God. Matthew Henry had a pretty good quote on it as well. Every true believer hath ceased from his own works of righteousness and from the burdensome works of the law. As God and Christ have ceased from their works of creation and redemption, you know, God is finished with creation. Christ is finished with redemption. And we should work or should, should rest from trying to work even in our own righteousness because we, we can't like gain righteousness through works. And I was thinking, as we already talked a little bit, you know, I feel like so many times, you know, we've heard that like the Sabbath day today, we should do no work, which is true. We agree with that. But I was thinking we shouldn't, but sometimes coming here can feel a little bit like work, if that makes sense. It's like it is a job to wake up at, you know, 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning to come here. I mean, ask Daryl if what he's done so far today has been restful. Waking up, going hunting down coffee, going hunting down donuts, putting every book neatly out there. Ask Tina, you know, filling all this up. So it's... I think we would deceive ourselves if we think that the day of the Lord, the Sabbath, the Sunday is just supposed to be us on the couch resting, you know, like that is a form of rest. But I think it's also spiritual, you know, because it's it takes work to get here. I mean, you know, I have kids, we all have kids, so we know what it's like, like it's a lot of work. And it's so because in our culture today, this there's a lot of people who, you know, who won't go to church because they, they want to sit on the couch because they, they, don't, they don't think that coming, the point I'm trying to make here is they don't think that coming to this gathering is restful, which we would agree it's not exactly super physically restful. If that's, does that make sense? Because like, we all have to do things to get here today, but we're here for that spiritual rest that God gives to our souls, which is the greatest need that we need. That's what we talked about last week. Our greatest need is spiritual a spiritual rest because 
You know, when my mind is in turmoil because I am convicted of my sins, I want to come here and repent of my sins and receive this great rest that only comes through Christ. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that it's sad when you see people, because I've heard people, you know, explicitly talk about like, yeah, you know, I don't go to church because Sunday's my day. Sunday's the day, you know, they work Monday through Saturday. A lot of people do work six days a week. And so Sunday's the only day that they get to stay home and have that physical rest. But he's teaching us here that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we should strive to enter that rest, not only the rest of salvation, we should look to Christ, but we should even strive and labor to enter into this weekly rest that we have here Every Sunday when we gather together. Now we are going to move on to verse 12. This next portion of Hebrews is so great. And it talks about the word. I love how right after he talks about the Sabbath rest. He goes right into how powerful the word of God is. And because you know we're here every Sunday. To sing, to worship, to look to Christ. And to hear the word of God. So now we're going to see how powerful this word of God is. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want to read Matthew Henry's commentary on this section. I mean, this is probably one of the greatest detailed sections in Scripture where it's talking about all the things that, like, hearing the Word of God can do. And I love how Matthew Henry expounds about how this Word of God convicts the sinner. It makes a soul that has been a long time of a proud spirit to be humble. Makes you think of maybe Saul, you know. The word of God, Christ came to him. He humbled himself and came to faith. It makes a person of a perverse spirit to be meek and obedient. Those sinful habits that have become, as it were, natural to the soul and rooted deeply in it and become in a manner one with it. So a person who's been so in sin for so long, it's almost like it's all they know how to do. The word of God separates that and cuts it off by the sword. It cuts off ignorance from the understanding, rebellion from the will, and enmity from the mind, which when carnal is enmity itself against God. This sword, talking about the sword, the word of God, it divides between the joints and the marrow, the most secret, close, and intimate parts of the body. This sword can cut off the lusts of the flesh as well as the lusts of the mind and make men willing to undergo the sharpest Operation of mortifying sin. And that's what we want as Christians. We want the word of God to cut our hearts deeply that we would turn away from our sins. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, even the most secret and remote thoughts and designs. It will discover to men the variety of their thoughts and purpose, the vileness of them, the bad principles they are actuated by, the sinister and sinful ends they act to. The word will turn the inside of a sinner out. 
That was pretty good. Like, man, it it flips us completely inside out. Nothing is hidden to the eyes of the Lord. And let him see all that is in his heart. Now such a word as this must needs be a great help to our faith and to our obedience. The word of God cuts us to the soul. And we also know that God sees everything. You know, almighty God, even the people who aren't coming to the Lord's Day worship, even people who aren't believers, God sees everything they do. And he says right here, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Someday, on the final day, we're going to have to give an account for the things that we've done. Second Corinthians 5, 10 says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And that in itself, talking about fear, I mean, that sometimes I'm like, man, I'm going to have to stand before God someday. And it, even though I'm a Christian, sometimes it still sounds a little terrifying like to be in the hands of God alone. But that leads us into the final portion of this chapter where we can see that we do not have to fear in, in, in a horrible dread of this Lord's day, but we get to look to Christ, this great high priest. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses The one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's also repeating here, talking about how Christ was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's also repeating what we saw at the end of Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's my favorite part about the book of Hebrews, is it's like this great theology, and he's just stacking those bricks on top, on top, on top. And each scripture, each passage, each chapter, you further see this great tower of the greatness of Christ. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It is explicitly clear. We'll get into this in chapter 5. We'll just briefly touch on it now. It is explicitly clear in the scriptures that Jesus is our great high priest and there is no need for an earthly priest. You can go straight to Christ. The Bible clearly teaches he is the only mediator between God and man. We will dive into the depths of that truth in chapter 5 and I'm really excited about it. I'll explain later why, but some. And we already talked about earlier in the book of Hebrews. I'm talking about the, the bricks being stacked, this towering of Christ. Christ, as we heard, is greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. It's just interesting to think about, you know, the priests of the old covenant, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to downplay like their role, their job. It was a serious thing. I mean, if you went into the holiest of holies in the Old Testament, you would die. That's, that's just. It blows my mind to think about it. So we don't want to downplay it and the significance of the old covenant and the significance of the leaders God placed there. But it's still interesting to think about. Christ passed through the heavens for us. Like, whoa. 
Like they went through man-made tents, which were special, but not the heavens, man. Like Christ passed through the heavens for you. Jesus, the Son of God, so we can hold fast this confession that we proclaim together in Christ, this confession of the gospel. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He didn't sin continually like the priests of the Old Covenant, which we'll see in chapter 5. Let us then with confidence draw near to this throne of grace. Man, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is so incredible. (laughs) We don't have to worry because we can put our faith in Christ. I want to read a note from Matthew Henry. This note was supposed to be shared when we were talking about the rest and the the Sabbath day. But I I think it's, it's good. And it's going to be good for this passage we're going through right now. Let us therefore labor. Let us all agree and be unanimous in this. And let us quicken one another and call upon one another to to this diligence. This one, this right here. It is the truest act of friendship when we see our fellow Christians loiter. Loiter can mean like to stand around. It's the greatest act of friendship to call upon them to mind their business and labor at it in earnest. Come, sirs, let us all go to work. Why do we sit still? Why do we loiter? Come, let us labor. Now is our working time. Our rest remains. Thus should Christians call upon themselves and one another to be diligent in duty. And so much more as we see the day approaching. We know that the scriptures teach us not to neglect the Lord's day. Let's as Christians encourage one another to come together, to gather on the Lord's day. That way we can boldly, with confidence, together come before this throne of grace. Man, I thought that was so cool when he said that. It's the greatest, the greatest friend would be a person who encourages you to worship Christ. The greatest friend would be someone who's encouraging you to gather with the saints, to go before the Lord, even in your personal time, you know. I know we talk a lot about Sunday in the Reformed Church because it's pretty important, but maybe even in the week, you know, go to Christ. Get in the scriptures. We talk so much. Okay. We're specifically talking about salvation here. Salvation is not of works. We will preach that till we are dead. Salvation is only through Christ. So anytime we hear the the work word, we get a little, whoa. But let's be real here. It is hard. We must strive to take time during the week to spend with Christ, to gather on the Lord's day. So there is this effort that we have to put in. Uh, We can't, we are not robots. That's what people tell us, you know, because we are reformed. We believe in the doctrines of the Reformed Church. So people tell us, you know, you guys are just robots. God's just, you know. We know that's not true, man. Like God didn't make me get up and come to church today. I was like, this is what we need to do for our family, for our lives. And mainly because we want to be like Christ. Praise the Lord for his mighty word. Emotionally, every time I preach, sorry. We're going to end with the end of this chapter. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to this throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 
Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the great work of salvation that you've done in our Savior, Christ Jesus, Lord. And today we even get to partake in the Lord's Supper, which we haven't for a few weeks. God, as we partake in your supper today, Lord, help us to look to Christ, this great mediator between God and man. We're so grateful for salvation, and it was only purchased through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.